All right, so it's been a while since we've been in Sunday school together. What do you guys remember from this class so far? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's about where I am. That's why we have little notebooks, though, with handouts. So if you want, you can cheat and go back and look. What is systematic theology? Kind of like biology? Same thing, right? Yeah. 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 Both got ology in there, right? So it's a study of. What is the study of? Theo. The study of God, right? All right. So systematically going through and studying theology. So there's theology proper, which is talking about God himself, and then just a broader sense of theology, which is talking about the, the things of God. And so, so far we've only gotten into bibliology, the study of the Bible. Um, next week we're going to get into theology proper and talk about God and his nature and his character, um, his person, who he is. Um, what about inspiration? We talked about inspiration the last time we were in this class, which again was quite a while ago. <laughs> inspiration was in June. Doctrine of God's intervention through the written word. Yeah, God <laughs> speaking to us. Um, and he has inspired his Bible, spoken to us through his holy prophets as he carries them along. Um, we learned about verbal and plenary inspiration, how each and every word of God is inspired. He doesn't speak fallibly. He is infallible. And so of those two words, infallibility and inerrancy, which one is the strongest? Or what do they, what do they mean, maybe? Okay. Right? Yeah, that's right. So I would say that infallibility is a, a stronger word to speak of God's perfect character, his perfect nature. So, yes, he is infallible. I mean, he is inerrant, he is without error, but that is because he is infallible, because he, by nature, is incapable of error. All right, today we are going to get into where we got our Bible and how we got our Bible. What have you guys heard about how we got our Bible? Heretically, I mean? Yeah, I mean, like, what are the popular <laughs> ideas and thoughts that the world system will throw at us? Okay, a couple of people just wrote, it, wrote some stuff that would benefit, they figured would benefit society. Just kind of a moralistic approach. People need to be better, so let's write down these rules to bring society together. Yeah. 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 What else? You're you're homeschooled, so I guess you don't really get that public school side, but I'm sure that several of us were public schooled, right? What do we get in the public schools? (laughs) What about on the work site? They'll just tell you it's just another book. Yeah. It's just mostly fiction, I believe. Yeah, even calling it a history book would be generous by most people's standards. They wouldn't even say it's a history book, but you could work with that if somebody looks at it as a history book. That's a good starting point. 
Yeah. You, I mean, I've heard the opposite of that, where it's just like a bunch of fairy tales, especially referring to Noah and mm-hmm. um, Jonah and things like that. Like these are just silly children's stories. Yeah, they'll take and they'll pick apart what we accept and what we believe. Just first 11, 12 chapters of Genesis out the window, because some guy riding on a boat, you know, with a bunch of animals. Like, how foolish does that sound? Uh, Jonah or or Daniel and his prophecies, a look at prophecy and just completely write it off altogether, saying that's impossible. That can't actually happen. Um, yeah. I know that of people who won't call um, the Bible Bible stories when they're talking to their kids because it has that connotation. Like, oh, it's just a story. It's just a fairy tale. So, no, this is biblical history. This is theological truth. It's not a Bible story. It's we have a friend that's a uh, creationist missionary, hmm. and uh, he he got us. He told us we need to stop calling it Bible stories. Yeah. It sounds like children's stories. It sounds like you know Mother Goose and that. Yeah. So he he kind of got us to call it uh, biblical accounts, biblical narratives. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good practice. It's a historical account, not just a little nursery rhyme. Yeah. All right. Well, today we have two words that we want to try to be a little bit more familiar with by the time we're done. And those two words are revelation and preservation. Revelation and preservation. We're going to talk about these two different kinds of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. We've mentioned them several times throughout different classes. What are the differences between general and special revelation? I'm getting some sideways looks. <laughs> Come on, Trav, I know you. Well, I can throw something out there. Let's see. <laughs> you, you take a stab at it. Okay, there we go. So, General would say uh, it's, well, creation. You see the mountains. That's revealed that there's a creator. Yeah. And then special revelation would be what? Would be God telling a specific individual that, yes, I did create that mountain. Okay, awesome. And having him... Write it down. Absolutely. Good job. Throw some Greek in there. You That's good. Yep, yep. <laughs> Alright, so yeah, general revelation. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that what may, may be known about God is plain to us because God has made it plain to us. And then he jumps into that exact example of creation. He says, for since the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. So we can look out and we can see, like, man, I... I can move. I have intellect. I have emotion. I will. Like, where does that come from? Um, there's this tree. There's this lake. There's this mountain. It doesn't just come from nowhere. And even a, a simple child can tell you, like, that has to have a source. It has to have a beginning. Um, and God has placed within us an understanding of the fact that He is God. And a lot of people will question that. They'll say, well, Really, what we as Christians need to do is we need to go to the atheist. We need to go to the person who hates God, and we need to dump all this evidence on them and show them, well, there is a God, because, and point to the the intricate details of the eyeball or um, 
like the the universe and all these stats and different evidences and and that's one way to do it but in doing that what we're doing is we are making that person the judge rather than looking to the judge to to god himself who says well that person already knows about me what they're doing is they're denying me and they're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness and three times in that chapter in romans one it says that he has given them over to their sin so by nature we are fallen by nature we are denying the fact that god exists he has put that within us and unbelievers will suppress that truth and they will embrace something else as God, usually themselves, um, because they don't want to bow the knee to the Holy Creator. Um, so that is general revelation, that God has told us all about himself in a general sense. And then special revelation, as you mentioned, I have slides of it. Maybe I should be clicking through these. So there is a difference between the two. Um, general revelation is the way that God reveals himself through his creation to his creatures. Again, Romans 1 is cited there, so he's speaking through his creation specifically to the creatures. And then special revelation is a way that God reveals himself in greater detail, primarily through scripture. And that text there, 2 Timothy 3, we looked at a couple weeks ago with Sola Scriptura, that all scripture is God-breathed, that word that Travis used, theonustos, it's literally breathed out by God. Um, and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, how does that special revelation come about? Well, God talking to or through specific people a lot of times, or most of the times. He reveals things to them as he did to Moses, and as Moses translated the Bible, which is huge. It's just unfathomable how Moses could have written the things he written. Yeah. Because of so little knowledge he had. He probably knew a lot about the Egyptians. I don't know if he had a lot of them. So God had to fill in all the blanks. Mm-hmm. I actually had to create it in his mind, I believe. It's not a blank situation for him. But it's just like uh, throughout the Bible, we use specific people to give specific details that can be used for future, not only through the revelation of that time, but future events that will come about. We talked about that a little bit last time we met, how that weird dichotomy that God is the one who is speaking through the individual, yet he uses that individual and their, their background and their personality traits to bring across a, a certain tone to their their message. So you can tell the difference between Paul and, and Peter when you're reading, um, <laughs> or between Luke, who writes at a, a really scholarly level, and again, John, who is basic. You take an introductory Greek class and you're reading through First John because it's just foundational, basic. Um, Luke is like for scholars to, to dissect and figure out what he's writing. Same with uh, Hebrews, which is why some people think that Luke may have wrote Hebrews because it's on that same level, literally, um, literarily. All right, Revelation. God's special revelation is communicated in four ways. The first is direct acts. So, Jerry, that would kind of fall under what you're saying. So he reveals directly to um, to individuals, to prophets and 
um, in the the New Testament to his apostles, and they'll take and they'll write that down and preserve it for us uh, through dreams and visions. Um, we spoke of of Daniel, right? Now he had these dreams and these visions. Um, getting into the New Testament, um, Cornelius and uh, Peter, we had those interactions where Cornelius was spoken to directly and Peter had this vision that he would be coming and they would have this this interaction, this dialogue between them. Third way that Christ communicates through special revelation is Christ's incarnation. Um, that he, the word, became flesh. And that's how we actually know that that Greek word logos is is logic. It could be so word um, to, to put that together. So word to, to logic, to reason, um, that's what God did. He communicated with us through himself. The, the cre- creator became um, one of his creatures, so to speak, or on the level of his creation, so that he can communicate with us. And then the canon of scripture. And again, that's what we talked about a couple weeks ago in scripture alone. That is our sole infallible authority. We go to Scripture because that is God, how God has chosen to speak to us. Thoughts or questions at this point? Okay. Uh, that's from uh, Biblical Doctrine. All right. And when Scripture is part of God's special revelation, it's not a separate work in addition to His revelation. So. It is what he has preserved for us, what he has given to us to speak to us today. Um, Realizing that we would be here 2,000 years later. We wouldn't be walking on the earth with Jesus or with modern-day prophets or apostles. He has taken and preserved his word so that we could have access to the Creator and to his um, revelation to us. All right, and in that, we see these attributes of God. And we're going to get into greater detail about these attributes as we get into theology proper. But we're going to be learning about God's imminence, that he is imminent. He is here. He has um, lowered himself to a point where we can understand him. So the the counterpart of imminence is transcendence, that he is above, he is out of this world, he is unknowable in a sense. Um, but he has made himself noble. He has made himself present and imminent and he is spiritual which really speaks to the need for him needing to reveal himself because he is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth he isn't material as we are he is immaterial and so in order for us to know him he needs to make himself known through revelation all right here we see his transcendence and his omnipotence that he is transcendent he is Above, He is completely separate from his creation and his omnipotence. The fact that he is all-powerful speaks to his ability to keep and to preserve his word, to, to reveal to a, a completely different being who's on a completely different level, other creaturely, um, the fact that he is God and the fact that we are not. Alright, preservation. The preservation of scripture is incredibly important as it relates to the way that Christians know God and discover how he wants them to live for us. 
Um, if God weren't to have told us about himself, we wouldn't know him in that specific, special way. Again, we could look at general revelation. We could see, okay, well, there's somebody out there who's bigger than I am, who's greater than I am. Um, but I don't know his name. I don't know what he's done for me. I don't know anything about him. And again, a bunch of the people who suppress the truth that God has placed within them, that there is a God, um, turn to ideas as such as aliens have, have put us here. They have made us, right? Because they realize there's something out there, there's something bigger, but they suppress that truth. And um, general revelation is enough to condemn us, but not enough to save us. It's not enough to tell us that there was a man who walked this earth who really wasn't just a man. He was fully man. He was fully God. And he laid down his life for us because we owe a sin debt. That's not something you can get by looking at a tree. You can take a magnifying glass and look at that tree all day. You're not going to figure out that um, we have a Savior in Christ. So that's why we have not just general, but special revelation. And that's been preserved for us so that we today can connect with that truth. All right, this concept is completely aside from the idea of personal revelation. Um, it's different. Um, we'll go there another time. But you think of a, a perfect, all-knowing being, a, a God who is logical, who, who reasons. He's going to speak with us in a logical and reasonable way to communicate with us. It, it makes sense that he is a God who would communicate with us because he is logical. But... He could really choose one of two ways. He could speak to each one of us individually on an individual basis and reveal himself to us, or he could reveal himself to us in a, a singular source, which he has through the Bible, which we can go back to and we can correct. If he had spoken to us in an individual way, on a, a personal revelatory basis, then um, we could get contradictory reports. We could say, oh, well, God told me this, which people do all the time. Um, what do we do when one person says that God told them something and somebody else says God told them something that was contradictory? Well, God told me it's, it's okay to, to shack up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. God told me that abortion is fine because it will help me better my, my future. Well, how do we know that that's from God? We don't unless we have a singular source. And so that's why God has chosen to speak to us through uh, the revelation of his word. I think a lot of times, you know, as you go up with a couple of those aspects, that in God's Word, some people could draw the conclusions that if they really read God's Word or understood it, it would be totally contradictory to what He is and what He has said and what He has done. Mm-hmm. And like abortion, just for instance, it is the innocent. And He never was a bore anything to shed blood, murder. And especially as the innocent, He has always been against it. There's considered murder in, in that sense of the words. But I'm going to bandwagon. But I think the word of God sometimes is more explicit than, than people want it to, to be if they'll just study it out. Yeah. In direction of what step to take and where to go and what to believe and, and how we should function in life. Under the of yeah. He's given us everything we need for, for life and godliness within the Bible. It's, it's all we need. It is adequate. It is sufficient. Um, and yeah, that's why we don't have a need for personal revelation in that sense of the word. 
Alright, preservation as a doctrine refers to the act of God whereby he has preserved through the centuries the written record of his special revelation to his people. He has preserved through the centuries a written record of his special revelation for his people. So that special revelation doesn't come to us directly. Again, the the first of those four ways in which God reveals himself to us in a special way is direct revelation. That's not for us. That was for the, the prophets and the apostles. And it has been preserved for us through the written record we call the Bible. All right. Old Testament has been preserved in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek, and both being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence have been kept pure in all ages and therefore authentical so as in all controversies of religion the church is finally to appeal to them. So we aren't to appeal to the church, but the church appeals to this authority which God has preserved for us. Um, This Hebrew and Greek New and Old Testament, which sounds great, but you and I don't speak Hebrew and Greek, right? And even if we did, we don't have direct access to those Hebrew writings, to those Greek writings. And so how did we get the Bible that we have sitting before us today? Um, If we, first of all, don't have those manuscripts before us, and secondly, we don't have the ability to, to read and to decipher them. That's what we're going to get into and talk about a little bit. We're going to talk about the transmission of Scripture and how Scripture was preserved and and passed down for us. All right, so what would happen is one of the apostles would write a letter, New Testament age, and and that letter would be sent off to to one of the churches. Uh, We... I think we can often distance ourselves from the Bible and not realize that these were real people writing to other real people at a time. So, um, you know, the apostles were acting as um, kind of pastors, overseers, people who had care for sheep who were part of their shepherd, who um, went out and they were making disciples, right? And so these disciples that they had made needed some guidance, they needed some direction. And so in order to help direct them, in order to help inform them, they sat down, they took out a a pen and paper, so to speak, um, really papyri, and I don't know if they used a a quill or or what they used, but they wanted to give them instructions, so they would write this and and send it off to a church. Um, Again, it's just kind of cool to to think about, because I think we, we separate ourselves from that all too often. We just pick it up and, oh yeah, this is the book of Ephesians. This is Romans. Well, what does that mean to us? That means that the author was really writing to a church who was in that specific location in, in Ephesus or in Rome. Um, and then that church would take and, and pass it along to other churches in different regions. Somebody pull up this passage here, Galatians 1, and read the first few verses of that for us. This passage is a a little bit unique in that it tells us that there were different churches that were being written to. Um, Galatia wasn't just one small city. It was a a greater region, so he's written to a a region, kind of more like a a county than a city, I guess, um, to a, a group of churches in that area. Does somebody have that passage? 
All right. Following the household, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so he was writing to the churches, plural, at Galatia, not just a single church, but the churches. And so a couple of different ways that this could have manifested itself. Um, says it's clear, this is Leon Morris writing on Galatians, he says it's clear that Paul intended his words to have a wide circulation in the region of Galatia. The letter would be taken to each center and read there, or several copies would be made and one taken to each church. But perhaps Paul's reference to the large letters that he wrote indicates that one copy went around to all the churches rather than several copies were made and one sent to each church. And so whether or not they took this original that Paul had sent and took it around to the different churches, maybe read through it, you know, one Lord's Day and then next Lord's Day, take it up to the church up the road and they can read through it to their church. Um, but even if they did that, if they took this original and they they took it around, you can bet that they're going to treasure these words realizing this is an apostle, this is a, a man of God, a man sent from God. Um, we want to take, we want to write down, we want to preserve these words so we have them for ourselves, so we can go back and we can pour over them and study them just like we do each Lord's Day ourselves. We want to come, we want to hear somebody exposit the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of depth, a lot of richness in, in the Word of God. And so you can imagine they would take and they would write down a copy uh, for themselves, even if they sent the original on, even though I'd be tempted to keep the original and send a copy. Um, I guess that might mean you have to forge Paul's large letters. But, um, yeah, they would take and, and they would make copies of the original. So you have the original that the apostle authored, sent it to the church, um, and then they would make copies to pass on to the other, other churches. And so you have the same thing kind of multiplying. Um, all these different churches, not just in Galatia. While he was writing originally to the Church of Galatia, you can imagine that it would spread around quite rapidly. Thoughts or questions? Right. Boom. So, trash. Get yeah, trash. So, so when these guys are writing this down, these copies, yeah. this is, uh, it's, I think it's crucial. These guys are not just people that just kind of pen out. You can write your own words, so write them. These are artists. These are craftsmen that are writing this down. They've yeah. made their own paper. They, sharpen their own quills, they crush bugs with their own ink and stuff, and they've done this to a, in a beautiful uh, painting almost. Watch how these guys, this, I mean, they're making candles, these guys are making candles, but they didn't just, you know, throw some wax in a ball and stick a wick in there, you know, I mean, this is sculptures, you know. Yeah. So they did this, and not just here, whatever, next, you know, keep going, no, they did it, they took their time. Yeah. Coming from an artist himself, he knows what it's all about. He does a little bug squeaking. <laughs> Makes for some good color, huh? Add to that canvas. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a, a tedious process because they realized that it was Theonosos. This is God-breathed, and we need to take it, we need to preserve it with the, the utmost care. Uh, scribes were paid a, a salary that was comparable to, to surgeons, to doctors, because it was realized the, the importance of the work that they were doing. They wanted to preserve um, this is just in a, a general sense, so they just want to preserve you know, like Roman or Greek history or something. But these guys are, again, dealing with the Word of God. And so um, they took a ton of care in what they were doing in writing that and spreading it around. 
Um, can I have you guys grab these different passages? Oh, one, two, three. All right, so we've got 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Who's got that? All right, Trev. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 13. Brett. And 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. All right, Kayla. All right, whenever you get there, go ahead and share. Speaking the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he gave thanks, had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you to do this remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This uh, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right. And so that's a practice that you and I are going to be <laughs> engaging in this morning. We're going to be remembering the Lord's Supper ourselves this morning. Um, that would not have happened had this word not gotten around. It didn't just get around to this poor, pathetic church in Corinth, right? But it, it spread out even farther to different churches. And uh, this was a practice that he told them, you need to take this, you need to do this, you need to initiate and keep this practice. Second Timothy. Um, he doesn't come to me quickly, for Damis has forsaken me, having left this present world, and he has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only this is with him. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me for ministry. In Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, bring the cloak that I have left with carpets at Troas when you come in the books, especially the parchments. Mm-hmm. All right. Where in that passage do we see the the spread of the word, the preservation of God's revelation? So Paul's writing to Timothy. He's discouraged. He's been betrayed by Demas, right? And he says... Bring me some stuff. What does he want? So send me Mark, right? He's looking for the parchments for the books. What does that mean? What parchments, what books he talking about? Yeah, I mean, we don't know specifically, but he's talking about other scripture, right? And I mean, he could be talking about his own writings, assuming, okay, well, I don't have a copy of that letter I wrote to Ephesus or to Philippi, but hundreds of other people make copies by now. Bring me one of those. But I think perhaps he's talking about scripture that other apostles have written. Hey, that that letter that Peter sent out, bring me one of those. That that book that that John wrote, I want a copy of that. Um, that'd be kind of cool. So he treasured these and he valued them and he's asking for them um, right before he's about to die. He's locked up and wanting these parchments to, again, look back and study what is Theonustos. Um, give me that, that revelation from God as it's been preserved. All right, Second Peter. In regard the patience of, the, of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in his letters 
speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. All right. A couple things we see in that passage. What do we see in, in way of preservation and, and revelation? Remember, this is Peter writing here in Second Peter. What does he say about Paul's teachings? Wisdom given. Yeah, it's wisdom given to him. What was that? Yeah. What does he call it? Wisdom. Calls it wisdom. Calls it his letters. Scriptures. Yeah. He says it's scripture. Um, he's identifying the, the writings of Peter as scripture, as the words of God. And then he adds, they're hard to understand. Uh, as if Peter's words are difficult to understand. I think Peter is more difficult to understand than Paul. Um, but and then at the end, he says that um, untaught men and unstable men come in. They try to distort these scriptures, twisting them to their own destruction. So speaking of the the importance of preserving that word and the reality that, that untaught men, they're going to try to come in and they're going to try to distort it. They're going to try to... Um, take and, and twist it, but it's not to the destruction of the words of God. It's to their own destruction. The words of God are, are never going to fail. The words of God are always going to uh, prevail. They're always going to go forward. But those who try to distort them, it's to their destruction. All right. So word got around, and it was preserved. And we can see that even in Scripture itself. Um, and we know this because we found many different preserved copies. It's not just um, something that fell out of the sky and landed before us. It's not just a, a book that we um, went down and, and bought at Walmart, but it's been preserved for us on these different uh, parchments, these different manuscripts is what they're called. And so here we have uh, this kind of chart that really... I'll give you a minute to, to look at that and try to decipher that, but I have a, a video on here I want to try to show you. Hopefully it'll play okay. That really goes through and talks about how reliable the New Testament is. So you see down here the, the time span between the earliest copy that we have based on when it was written. Only 25 years, and that's maybe a little bit generous. So 25 to 100 years since uh, the first copy was written down by the Apostle. And we don't have any of those first copies that the apostles wrote down, but we have the, the copies of the copies, again, which were uh, meticulously written down and uh, divinely preserved by the Holy Spirit. And you look at these other works of, of literature, these people that are studied in universities and colleges all over the place, and nobody questions the authenticity of, of Homer or Aristotle and wonders, well, is this really what they were saying? Is this really what they were trying to, to get through to us? Can we really trust what, what Plato was saying? Um, but it comes to the Bible, and people are always questioning the Bible. And then down in this last column, you see the number of copies. 
the New Testament is in the thousands, and these others are double or, or triple digits at best. And again, they're not questioned in the slightest. But go back to Romans 1. What are we doing with the truth that God has placed within us? Well, we suppress it by by nature, right? That is our, our natural tendency to suppress that truth um, and to embrace our sin, to embrace uh, the worship of something else that isn't the creator. All right, again here, it's just a different way to show it. The approximate time span between the original and the copy. And all these are up over, uh, well, the nearest is 500 years with Homer's Iliad. 500 years after he wrote it down, it's a, the next copy that we have. But most of them are up over 1,000 years. Since all these um, philosophers that are just resound throughout the world, you know, Plato and um, Caesar, Homer, Aristotle, but the the New Testament's less than a hundred years or so. Right, let's see if this will work for us. No, coffee. <laughs> coffee. Yeah. Too much coffee to the <laughs> scriptures again. Should check the audio beforehand, huh? They have this at the Creation Museum, where the Howards are. But the Bible's been through so many changes and so many revisions that we really can't know what the original message was. Let's use some coffee beans to illustrate a major problem with that argument. And what we're going to do is look at the manuscript evidence for some ancient writings compared to the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. That is, we're going to be looking at the handwritten copies made before the days of the printing press for each of these works. For example, for Tacitus, he wrote his famous work called The Annals around the year AD 100. And the earliest copy we have for that comes from about 750 years later. So there's a 750 year gap between when it was written and our earliest copy. How many copies do we have? Just two. So let's put two beans in this cup to represent those manuscripts. For Plato's dialogues, there's a 1200 year gap and we have just seven copies. For the histories by Herodotus, there's a 1,300 year gap with just nine copies. And we have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars after a 900 year gap. Now, very few people question whether we have the original message of these writings, yet they constantly attack the Bible on this point. And yet the manuscript evidence we have for these is so minimal, and the gap between when they were written and when their earliest copies come from is enormous. So what about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century AD, and the earliest manuscript evidence we have for it comes within 50 years of that time. Now, how many copies do we have? Well, there are nearly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts, and they average about 450 pages each. Looks like I should have used a bigger cup. But you know what? That's just the Greek manuscripts. When we count the other languages, like Latin, Coptic, in Armenian, there's another 20,000 manuscripts. As I mentioned earlier, critics and skeptics rarely question whether we have the original message of these writings, and yet they frequently attack the Bible on this point. You know, it really just shows their bias. But when we look at the evidence before us, we see that their arguments really don't amount to a hill of beans.
coffee beans are really seeds, not beans. Now, some critics will say that there are a lot of differences between those New Testament manuscripts, or these differences, what we call variants. And they say there's tens of thousands of these variants. But the reason there's so many of these variants is because there are so many manuscripts. So what the critic is trying to do is take a great strength for the reliability of the text and turn it into a weakness. But here's the great thing about this. Because we have so many manuscripts, we can compare and contrast those. We know where those differences are. We know what they are. And we know that they're really insignificant and rarely do they have any bearing on the meaning of the text. In fact, even Bart Ehrman, the leading textual critic today, an agnostic, says that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variants in the New Testament. That's kind of cool, huh? Just shows you uh, how many different manuscripts we have. So the New Testament isn't lacking um, on evidence. There's a plethora of evidence. So that, that number, about 6,000, that's just the Greek manuscripts. Um, everything else is um, Coptic or Syrian, different other manuscripts that we have. And there are a ton. Um, and yet people are always questioning the reliability of the scripture. I think we'll probably wait until next week to get into um, what happened with those manuscripts and how we have those manuscripts and um, different kinds of, of manuscripts that we have. Um, but for now, you have any other thoughts or questions on what we've gone over so far? Yeah, for sure. <coughs> this one or the one before? Yeah, the one before. All right. That one. There we go. Yeah, so you think about it, and the, the time gap is really kind of telling. Because if somebody wrote down um, a copy, and that copy was copied um, 20 times since then, that just introduces that much more opportunity for error in the copies. Whereas if you have a, an earlier copy, and that really minimizes the chances of errors being introduced into the, the text. So picture this room. If we have a, a long room and we have you know, five people up here and they're writing down and they're taking their copy and they're passing it to the person behind them. And all these other copies, the earliest copies 500 to 1400 years down the road, you know, 500 to 1400 lines down the road, yeah. there can be that many more errors that are introduced. Whereas if a copy is just 25 to 100 rows down, it's going to be a lot more accurate. When we were in Fort Worth 15 years ago, Southwest Seminary there had the Dead Sea Scrolls on display. Yeah. And we went and got to see that. And it's just, when they have that, I, you know, it's not even complete Isaiah, but all of that laid out, you think, how in the world did they copy that? And they had a lot on how the making of the ink and the tools used and what the scribes had to go through just to make that one scroll. Yeah. Like, it makes you so thankful for your written work. Amen. Yeah, the print press. And it showed the first King James Bible. And, I mean, it was just, it's a miracle of God. It had to be an act of God to preserve his word. Yeah. Because it was just, it was just the coolest thing. Yeah, it wasn't easy, wasn't cheap. Um, but There's a video called The Indestructible Book. 
if you guys haven't seen that, it's it's really interesting. It's, I forget. I think it's. I can't see it's five five hours or ten hours. I can't remember. I think it's five hours, maybe six hours. But anyway, we we did it over a period of weeks mm-hmm. and studied. But it it has some stuff in there. It's just incredible. One is the rules that the scribes uh, used when they were copying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember the time period, but but one of the rules that they had was whenever they wrote God's name. They would get a new quilt. Mm-hmm. They would never write it with a used quilt. Secondly, they would never write out his name. They would write the three letters in Yahweh, which we, we interpret as Y H W H, the Tetragrammaton. Yeah. yeah. They wouldn't. They had so much respect for God that they wouldn't even write his full name. Mm-hmm. They always used a new pen to write his name. So when they would come to that, they'd give him a quill. Yeah. Uh, if they made more than, I forget, I think one or two mistakes on a page, they threw it away and started over. Yeah. I mean, they the rules were just crazy strict for how, how, how strict they were for getting exact mm-hmm. copies of God's word. And yet now we have it. We can hold it in our hand. We can hold ten copies on our phones. Um, yeah. And take it for granted. Way too much. It was. It was all kind. Of, it was some rule about bathing. I can't remember. It had to do with writing God's name or what. They'd have to go take a bath. <laughs> yeah. Clean off all their their sin or something. Right. I mean, huh. It's been a while since I've seen the video. It's very convicting about how we don't even spend time reading this. What a blessing it is to have it all to read. Absolutely. Uh, people had to do just to go hear the reading. Yesterday I was going through and doing some prep for today's lesson. On the back of your page, um, we'll go over it again next week, but I have that quote from Erasmus. And I took and I printed it out on a card. I'm going to hang it up in my truck. Um, while I'm driving and this is Erasmus writing in 1516 and he was a revolutionary really in translating a a Greek text into the Greek Bible into the Greek New Testament and he said would that these were translated into each and every language would that the farmer might sing snatches of scripture at his plow and the weaver might hum phrases of scripture to the tune of his shuttle that the traveler might lighten with stories from scripture the weariness of his journey. And we have that ability. Um, that's why I wanted to print it out and put it in my truck because I have the ability to listen to podcasts and sermons and uh, scripture and memory verses, all kinds of stuff while I'm driving down the street. And that's something that Erasmus could have never imagined. I mean, he, he dreamed it and he hoped for it. He said, I, I want this to be translated into every language. Um, and he went back to the Greek to get the, the Greek because it had been perverted by the Catholic Church with the Latin Vulgate. Um, and he had that desire that we would hum it while we're working, that we would be able to sing songs that have scripture indwelt with them. And we have that ability now more today than ever before. And yet we choose to do other things with our, our time and our 
our intellect rather than meditating on the words that God has revealed to us and preserved for us. Um, so I was challenged by that quote from Erasmus, and I hope that we will all be challenged by that and um, take the, the word of God a little bit more seriously and be thankful for people that went before us so that we could have it and study it freely. All right. Does somebody want to close us out in prayer? Oh, go ahead. When you go through it, there's governments that tried to eliminate the Bible. Oh, yeah. Uh, from the way God preserved it through the years. Yeah. And the way we got the English version. There were so many martyrs who gave up their life. Amen. Just to try to get it. Either get the copy or get an English copy. Remember, our, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, the powers, uh, the principalities of this dark world. So Satan's behind all of that. He wants the Word of God to, to just sit on our shelves if it's there at all. Um, and we need to, to realize that and, and combat that, put on our, our, spiritual, our spiritual warfare on a daily basis. I can't remember which king of England it was. But he was trying to get rid of the Bible, so they decided they'd just go out and buy up all the copies that were being, I think they were being printed in France uh, to get out of his control. And he decided he would try to buy up all the copies. He's supplying them with more money. <laughs> so, so they were selling them for everyone that sold they print two or three more. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's cool. And Britt, will you close this out in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity to meet together in fellowship and um, just praise you and you know, we thank you for your word and that it has that you have preserved it and that you carry it um, through history. We thank you that they're not just silly stories, but they're things that we can learn from and um, know that you, they are from you. And, um, we pray that we would just take your word seriously and that we would. That we would be thankful for the easy access we have to it and that we would teach it in our homes and um, teach it to people who need to know it who don't know. And um, just pray that you would give us boldness and give us joy and um, use us to think about the reasons, the many reasons we have hope in you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for how good you are to us and how many things you give us that we don't deserve. And, uh, just love you.